Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. This is Make It Pine. M.I.P. With Massimella Mark Thompson. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the leading organizations that has been keeping us informed about voting rights and really the ongoing loss of our voting rights for a number of years has been the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. Its president, Michael Waldman, joins us. He wrote in 2016, The Fight to Vote, which is a history of the voting rights struggle, but now the book itself has been updated and re-released with all of the current things that are going on and things are happening every single day. So here to talk about the book and where we are and where we not are, uh, not am, or I, I don't even know if I'm saying it. <laughs> Michael Waldman is here, president of the Brennan Center. Hey man, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Wherever, wherever we want to be, we're not there. We're not there. Amen. We're not. <laughs> we definitely. Thank you for having me. No, no, thank you. So I, you know, I guess, you know, I'm going to start with the, with the, we've had a couple of decisions in the North Carolina Supreme Court obviously made a good decision, ordered the redrawing of maps. But the Supreme Court of the United States upheld uh, Alabama's poorly drawn maps. So we got a little something and then we lost a little something, didn't we? Well, and and we we also had a very positive ruling in Ohio where a racially discriminatory map was struck down by that state's Supreme Court under the Ohio Constitution. But you're exactly right that the ruling that could have really troubling consequences going forward is the ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court on Alabama and its racial gerrymander. Um, for it, one thing that uh, you know should make people's blood boil a little bit is they did this on what's called the shadow docket, which is just about as sneaky as it sounds. They didn't really have a full argument. They did in the nature of uh, an emergency motion. But they basically said that uh, Alabama could proceed with its just racially discriminatory gerrymandered maps. And what's really a worry here is, as you know, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was the most effective civil rights law in many ways in the country's history. It was gutted in its most important part in 2013 in the Shelby County ruling uh, that ended in effect the preclearance, the the requirement that states with a history of racial discrimination in voting had to get permission in advance from the Justice Department or a federal court to change their voting rules. But there was another part of of the Voting Rights Act that still had some power, still had some oomph. They call it Section 2. Well, last year, the Supreme Court really gutted the ability to use Section 2 against these new voter suppression laws. And this ruling, the new ruling, makes it pretty clear that this same very uh, extreme Supreme Court, I think, may say 
that the Voting Rights Act cannot really be used against racial gerrymanders, as it has been for decades. Um, and uh, it, they're probably going to hear the big case next year, or the next term at least, but uh, it looks like the wrecking ball that the Supreme Court has taken to the Voting Rights Act um, is taking aim at the part that is still standing. In, in terms of the Ohio and North Carolina cases, though, is there any concern, Michael, that those cases will go to the Supremes? Well, uh, you know, the Ohio case, for example, it's under the Ohio Constitution and uh, it, it, it you know, the, sometimes th cases like that can uh, can go up to the Supreme Court. But as we look at um, as we look at the the situation we face um, at this moment in the long fight for voting rights and democracy in our country, um, the states are pressing forward with these racially discriminatory laws with. Uh, restrictions on voting with gerrymandering. If Congress cannot block those laws, cannot pass national voting rights legislation, even with a majority in both the House and the Senate because of the filibuster, which is, which is what is the case, and the federal courts will not act because, as we see, they're, they're, uh, they're not interested in protecting voting rights, then that gives states potentially a green light to do their worst. State legislatures a green light. One area where groups like the Brennan Center or the uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund and other, other groups that fight in the courts on voting rights, one, one avenue that we have are these state constitutions. Uh, and it's interesting, enforced by these state courts. I don't always love federalism. But this is an example where I'm glad Donald Trump isn't appointing the members of the Ohio Supreme Court or, or the North Carolina Supreme Court. Um, you know, it, it, there are 50 state constitutions. All but one of them have an explicit protection for the right to vote stronger than the U.S. constitutions. So uh, we're all going to be learning a lot more about state courts and how they work and how maybe they can protect the public when the federal courts won't do it. And now we also have 19 states currently, right, that have passed since um, the last election or at least since um, 2020, um, 2016, 2018 even, more restrictive, more suppression laws, have they not? That's right. And, and I think it's important, you know, as I, as I wrote this book and kind of looked at this moment in the history of the whole sweep of things throughout the country. And, you know, if someone were writing about the history of democracy in America 20 years from now, they sure would be writing about this moment for obvious reasons. For starters, think about what a civic miracle it was uh, in 2020. Despite the pandemic, we had the highest voter turnout since 1900. In the election that Donald Trump's own Department of Homeland Security said was the most secure ever. And that didn't just happen. That required civic groups, voting rights groups, businesses, sports teams, athletes, um, and election officials of both parties pulling together to making it work, making sure there was adequate opportunities, you know, to vote by mail, early voting, safe polling places, which in a lot of places turned out to be sports arenas or big box stores. Everybody pulled together 
and it and it worked and it, and it, i think it's something we ought to celebrate but what's happened since then that hasn't been at the very least the the only response we got trump's big lie that the election was stolen we got the insurrection driven by that big lie and as you say in 2021 19 states also driven by that big lie passed 19 new laws uh 19 states passed 34 new laws to make it harder to vote and uh, you know, some of those laws are worse than others. There was actually a lot of pushback that softened some of the worst provisions, but unfortunately, they are invariably targeted. Their impact is felt hardest by black voters, by Latino voters, Asian voters, native voters. Um, and uh, and as I say, there's no reason to think this is as bad as it can get. The other thing that's new um, and I think really dangerous is on top of these kind of, if you want to call them traditional voter suppression laws, we have new laws, some of them passing, that changes who counts the votes, who certifies the results, who 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 decides who wins the elections, and takes the look at a place like Georgia. You remember, so the, this Brad Raffensperger is the the Secretary of State of Georgia. He's he's no friend of the Brennan Center or other voting rights groups. But, you know, at a key moment when Trump was pressuring him, he he showed some courage. Remember, he Trump made that phone call and said, can you just find me 11,000 votes or I'll prosecute you criminally? And Raffensperger refused and then released the tape of the call. Well, the you know, he should be praised for that. And instead, the state legislature passed a law taking away the role of the Secretary of State in in determining a lot of the winners of elections. You see that in Texas, you see that in other places too. To me, that has a whiff of authoritarianism that is just absolutely um, un-American as far as I'm concerned. So there's plenty to be worried about. I'll mention the other thing. In recent years, not so much in the last year, there's been a lot of progress too in making our elections fairer and more, uh, more open and better run. Uh, you had automatic voter registration, redistricting reform, an end to felony disenfranchisement in Florida, all passed by ballot measures in the last few years. There is a broad public support for our democracy. And what we all need to do, I think, is 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 build that democracy movement to give it power and voice. And we have to keep building it. I'll admit some of the troops and I'm probably one of them have become a little bit weary and demoralized by mansion and cinema, obviously. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> I've got the rings under my eyes to, to, uh, to, to prove it. More MIP after this message. I, I want to get into that, but, but just before I do, just one of the questions in terms of where we stand at this moment. There is some dispute, Michael, amongst a number of analysts as to whether or not the Republicans have been able or will be able to gerrymand through, through a gerrymander, put themselves back in the majority in the House. Um, um, Cook Political Report is suggesting that's not possible. Um, um, David Daly at, at Fair Vote is saying that that is still very much a likelihood. H have you looked at that? W what's your take on that? We're doing quite a bit of analysis of the redistricting, and you know, which is right now, you know, it's, it's, it's not just redistricting, it's widespread gerrymandering. I think from a partisan 
perspective as people have analyzed it, the, the way it's all played out has not only helped the Republicans. I think, you know, people like the Cook Report who are just kind of looking at the horse race, they say, oh, you know, the, the Republicans in red states did what they could to gerrymander and gain as much advantage as they could. Um, in other parts of the country, you had either redistricting reform like through commissions, or maybe you have a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature, and there really wasn't gerrymandering. Um, and because the country is changing and because the country is becoming more diverse, that as a political matter, that tends to help the Democrats. And then you've got states like Illinois and New York that that are Democrat dominated that said, well, you know, we're going to do we're going to do our best to maximize our seats. Um, I don't I don't like gerrymandering anywhere by anyone. Both parties do it. The answer was the Freedom to Vote John Lewis Act. Uh, and the Democrats tried to pass it, and it would have stopped Democratic gerrymanders and Republican gerrymanders. So I, I take with a grain of salt the the, the boo-hooing of Republicans about the Democratic gerrymanders. We'd be better off if nobody did it. But it's important, too, not only to look at it from a partisan perspective, I would say. When you look at the country and how it is evolving, we want the government to reflect who the people are. We want the political system to do that. John Adams... Um, said that we want the legislature to be a mirror of the country. Well, the census made clear that pretty much all the population growth uh, was in the South and Southwest, and 95% of it was in communities of color, especially the Latino community and Asian community, to some extent, the black community. Well, that means that the new maps ought to reflect that. And instead, what you see are these gerrymanders that choke off the voices of these growing diverse uh, voters. And so purely aside from the partisan part of this, these maps are, are really wrong for the country because they're just not, they're, 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 they're choking off the aspirations of people to be part of our democracy, to be represented in government. Um, and, uh, and again, unfortunately, the Supreme Court, instead of standing up, for those values of democracy and equality uh, are uh, are giving a wink to the uh, to the gerrymanderers. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. More MIP after this message. Mansion and Cinema, the filibuster, your book chronicles what happened last month. That's not the first time the filibuster has been used in a voting rights fight on the Senate floor, correct? That is correct. I mean, it's a funny thing. I wrote two new chapters on recent events. It ended with the cliffhanger of what would happen with the these bills and what would Mansion and Cinema do. And so, unfortunately, it's still still relevant. It hasn't been made um, it, it hasn't been made obsolete by events. But you're exactly right. I mean, look, throughout the country's history, there have been times when national action is required when states are abusing the rights of their people. One of the times I point to came in the late 1800s. And I think you know, your listeners know the story broadly of what happened after the Civil War. And, and it's important to remember, this is actually something, as we talk about what kind of history is taught in schools, this is real history. And it was covered up for years and years and years. Um, after the Civil War, with the 15th Amendment, passed on a party line vote by the Republicans at the time, who were the Voting Rights Party, there was a flowering of democracy in the South, but black men voted at something like 90% turnout. 
Um, and as you know, there were governors and senators and members of Congress and legislators. And then, uh, in effect, the right to vote with, was withdrawn uh, because of terrorism by the KKK and others like that, because of political cowardice and some kind of very corrupt deals uh, in the 1870s. And we all know that part. But what's interesting, and I didn't know this until doing the research for the book, the deal that ended Reconstruction was in 1876. The Republicans traded away Reconstruction for one more term in the White House. But the voter suppression didn't happen the next day. By 1890, most of the voters in Mississippi were black. But they were under attack, physical attack and other kinds of attack. And at that point, there was a push by the Republicans for federal voting rights legislation. It passed the House of Representatives. Sound familiar? It went to the Senate and it was blocked by the first big filibuster of a voting rights bill. And when that happened, that gave the green light to states. And at that point, uh, partly for that reason, the states began to implement the Jim Crow laws. And the result was seven decades of disenfranchisement and discrimination. Um, Congress's failure to act uh, it, it, it created an open space for the worst of our impulses in our country. There were a lot of reasons. It was also the case that, as Dr. King talked about in his speech at the state capitol at Montgomery, that you know you had in the 1890s also a real populist movement of white farmers and workers and black farmers and workers across racial coalition. And that, of course, terrified the powers that be in the South. And that was another reason they, they said, we better get serious and start passing Jim Crow laws. But uh, con when Congress fails to act, things can get worse. And that's part of what we're saying about this, about this uh, Freedom to Vote John Lewis Act, about Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin. They say they're for voting rights. They say they understand the stakes. They can't, in fact, say that if they're not willing to take the actions to make sure these bills can pass. But now that, Michael, just fundamentally, um, they're allegedly Democrats. So just from a, a purely existential point of view, not passing the John Lewis bill pretty much enables Republicans to take power again. And, 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 and that's the thing. So even when you talk about, like you mentioned, some Democrats gerrymandering, that's wrong. Manchin and Sinema don't even do that for the I, Democrats in their own interest. That's what blows if, my mind. If I could understand them, you know, I would, <laughs> I would, I don't know if, if I would get rich off of it, but maybe we'd have a better chance. I mean, look, here's the thing. Uh, Senator Manchin, his state is a state um, that President Trump won by 39 points. So we understand that he's got some political waters to navigate. Senator Sinema, is in a state with two Democratic senators that Joe Biden won, where the electorate is 30% Latino, which is one of the groups targeted by all these laws, and where there are a bunch of completely crazy people <laughs> trying to take over the elections in Arizona. Uh, when Donald Trump went and had his rally out in Arizona a few weeks ago, um, the candidate who spoke for on the podium with him, who was running for Secretary of State, is a QAnon supporter, a conspiracy theorist. 
Um, so people in Arizona know the stakes here. So it is hard to fathom. Um, I will, I will agree. So lastly, the big lie in the atmosphere that's created, the insurrection, the atmosphere that's created, all that goes together. And you talk about reconstruction. Um, it, it's, it, would you not agree? It's almost as if we are reliving that era without, I guess, the <laughs> the cannons and the and the artillery. Yeah, we, don't, we don't have as many soldiers patrolling the polling places uh, this time, fortunately. You know, I hope not. But certainly the lesson of the late 1800s is things can go backwards as well as forwards. Interestingly, at that time in the North, too, it wasn't as bad as I write in the book. It wasn't as bad as the as, as the Jim Crow laws in the South. But in the North, there was a flood of immigrants coming into the cities. Um, they were not from Mexico. They were from Europe. They were from Italy or Eastern Europe. They were mostly Catholic and some Jewish. And the the sort of the, the 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 white Protestant forces of the time were really alarmed by the immigrants coming to power in the cities, and they passed laws in the North to make it harder for immigrants to vote. This kind of demographic change that we see in our country now, it's not the first time it's happened. There's been, from the very beginning of the country, two strains. And if I could tell a story uh, from our very beginnings that, that might suggest how deeply embedded this fight is, that it shouldn't totally be a surprise that we're having to actually fight over these issues because they're so core. In 1776, when, uh, when the revolution happened, uh, the Declaration of Independence didn't just break with Great Britain. It, it, it laid out this idea that all men and women are created equal, all men are created equal, it said, uh, and that government is legitimate, it said, only if it rests on the, quote, consent of the governed. And we know that they weren't living up to that then. I mean, Thomas Jefferson wrote it. <laughs> and at the time he wrote it in Philadelphia, he was being attended to by a 14-year-old enslaved boy. But the ideas were so radical, so powerful, they began to change people's views. At that point, only white men who owned property could vote. But each of the new states had to write their own constitution. And uh, in Pennsylvania, the constitution was written by Benjamin Franklin. And they eliminated the property requirement for voting. And it wasn't just for white men there in Pennsylvania, by the way. They eliminated the property requirement so that working class and poor men could vote. And here's how Ben Franklin explained it. He said, there's a man who owns a jackass and it's worth $50 so the man can vote. But then the jackass dies. The man is older, he's wiser, but the jackass is dead, so the man can't vote. So who, therefore, Ben Franklin asked, who has the right to vote, the man or the jackass? It's a pretty good question. Well, up in Massachusetts, John Adams, later the president, he was writing their constitution. And they said, hey, you, do, you ought to do what, what they did down in Pennsylvania and eliminate that property requirement. And John Adams was aghast. He, he said... If we do that, women will demand the right to vote. Lads of 18 will demand the right to vote. And men who hath not a farthing to their name will think themselves worthy of an equal voice in government, and they will demand the right to vote. John Adams said, there will be no end of it. Well, 
that's actually true. <laughs> there will be no end of it. That is the that is the fight. Some people want their seat at the table. Some people want to expand our democracy, and others who maybe have something to lose fight back just as hard. Um, and you know that's been true at key points in our country's history. And there's no question that we, all of us, are living through a moment like that right now. So we have to kind of all as weary as we may be, we all must play our own role in this historic moment of, of being part of the Ben Franklin crowd, not the John Adams crowd. And, and it's somewhere in there, too, was a decision that we, as African-Americans, were property and, and worth only three-fifths. <laughs> That's right. As, as, as well, right? I mean, that... I mean, That's you, in the original Constitution. Yeah. One of the, one of the stories... Uh, one of the stories that I think people don't understand fully, and some colleagues of mine wrote a book called The People's Constitution that came out over the last year that talks about this. We all look at that original 1787 Constitution. We all see the flaws in it. We see that, that black people were counted as three-fifths of a person for redistricting. Um, that was and, and, and population counts. We see how the Constitution was an undemocratic document in many ways and, and certainly condoned slavery. But what we all need to look at is how we all fought to change that Constitution. There was no right to vote in the original Constitution. There are now five separate constitutional amendments that talk about explicitly protecting the right to vote, the 15th Amendment being one of them. Um, uh, you know, it's a story of, of progress, but not progress that happened automatically or only in one direction or on its own. It only happened when people fought for it over many years. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the Declaration of Independence. So many times our efforts over the centuries have turned back to the values and ideals in that Declaration of Independence, equality, freedom, the consent of the governed, and, and use that almost as a, as a rebuke to the reality. And you heard that, for example, uh, Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address, uh, you know, saying that the country was dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal and basically, in effect, saying, if you really believe that, then we have to end slavery and have, as he called it, a new birth of freedom. And then 100 years later, Dr. King saying, as he said, standing in the symbolic shadow of Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial, saying the same thing saying, you know, his a remarkable extemporaneous peroration at the end of that speech where he said, uh, you know, I have a dream uh, that one nation, this nation, will live out the true meaning of its creed, that all men are created equal. There are There is power in those ideas, even though we know they haven't ever been really lived up to and sometimes less than others. To me, that still is the thing that gives me hope uh, that we can catch the conscience of the country as others have done too. And folks, please check out the updated edition of the Fight to Vote by Michael Waldman, president of NYU's Brennan Center. It's available wherever you get your books. Michael, congratulations on the update. Thank you um, for the update. Thank you for all the work that the Brennan Center is con continuing to do. Really, uh, one, if not many of ours, go-to source for the most relevant um, and the most up-to-date information about what is happening with our voting rights um, in this country. And this is a time uh, for which we all must stand up and meet uh, as, the, you know, a lot of those people, as we get ready to go back to Selma next month, 
Um, and I was talking to Michael before the interview, folks. I hope he's able to join us. But everyone needs to understand, we know about Dr. King, we know about John Lewis. But there were hundreds of regular everyday people, some of whom are still alive. We call them the foot soldiers. They're in Selma. Some of them never left. Regular everyday people, just like you and me and many of our listeners who had to stand up and make a difference. And I think this is an all call for everyone at this hour, too. I'm sure Michael agrees. Thank you. I do indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you for all you do. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.